Today, on episode number 804 of CXO Talk, we're talking about the democratization of technology and the impact on AI. Our guest is Bob Muglia. He is the former CEO of Snowflake and has had a legendary career. And I'm here with my amazing guest co-host, Q Harrison Terry. Bob, as we introduce you, I will hold up your book. It is called The Datapreneurs. You have this extraordinary background in the computer industry. I joined Microsoft, spent 23 years there. First technical guy in SQL Server, helped to build that business. Spent all my time in the product groups, ran, you know, ran in some senses almost everything at Microsoft for a little while, except for games, never did that. But I spent time in Windows Server. I ran uh, Visual Studio, helped to put that together, spent time in the Office Group and MSN. And then for the last seven years was running the Server and Tools Group and was president there and grew that business to about $17 billion. Uh, since then, by the way, it's gotten a lot bigger. That business has grown a lot since then. I help work with Scott Guthrie at Microsoft now, and it's many times that bit size now. It's just still it's pretty remarkable. Uh, after that, I spent a couple of years at Juniper down in the Bay Area, and then I joined Snowflake in the middle of 2014 and ran the company for five years. Uh, took it from zero revenue. That's an easy number to remember. I'm easy, it's not hard to remember zero. And took it to just about $200 million in revenue uh, before I moved on. What would you classify as a datapreneur? While I'm working with entrepreneurs now, what I've been doing since I left Snowflake is really helping small companies to grow and investing in small companies on five boards of, of private small companies, all involved in data in one way or another. And uh, But I realized that when I was at Microsoft, even though I was working for a really large company, I was working with entrepreneurs the whole time and um, data entrepreneurs or datapreneurs really. And my role has always been pretty consistently to take and help and work with these brilliant people that have built something truly amazing and help them to turn it into a viable product that sells in the marketplace. And that's kind of my sweet spot is helping to define the technology so that it's something people want to buy and then helping to bring it to market, price it, package it and sell it in the marketplace in a way that makes it successful, which is why I've been focusing on really early stage companies, because that's what they do. Um, they're trying to build things from the ground up. And I realized when I was at Juniper, I tried to fix a bunch of things. And it's really great. And I really respect the people that go into broken areas and like to fix them. Um, I decided that I prefer uh, building things uh, instead of fixing somebody else's broken something. And so that's what I've been working on. Do you want to give us a, just a very brief overview of the book and, and why you wrote it? I felt like I had something to say. I wanted to put it in a way that was reasonably easy for people to read. So I worked with a co-author, Steve Hamm, who was extremely helpful. Frankly, I could never have gotten the book done without Steve's help. We decided to focus on the people aspects of, of this, the datapreneurs that were actually building this incredible software. One of the key elements of this book is something called the arc of data innovation. And this is this idea that, that although we look around us and we see AI as this big new thing, the reality is that it's it's not it while it's it's new to us, the technology is being built and created over a period of time. And it's all built on incredible work that's been done over decades and decades of period. And so I told that in, that story in the in the datapreneurs, and I describe it in this context of this arc of innovation, which is key technologies that have been invented over the last 40 or 50 years that have led us to where we are today. We're now in a period where this work that's been done over these decades is really paying off 
in some very significant ways as we have this new AI technology that has been, you know, that we're all looking at and, and looking and thinking about how is that going to affect our lives? How should I organize data in my organization if I'm starting at zero versus if I'm already an incumbent with a le- with a lot of legacy uh, technical debt? Like, what what would what's the best practices? Well, it's easier when you're starting from scratch because you can, you know, you're if you start in 2023, you have the the incredible modern data stack to build on top of, and the modern data stack are really a set of services that work together to provide internet scale, you know, incredibly large scale working with data, allowing people of companies of really any size to work with all of their data. And now it's really all of the different types of data. Classically, it was structured data coming out of business systems, um, as well as potentially semi-structured log data that people were analyzing to understand the behavior of applications. But now we're in a world where there are new data sources that are super interesting, like video and documents and, and, and speech, All of these are elements of data that are now being collected as a part of companies and can be analyzed. What I would do, I mean, if I'm starting from scratch, it's pretty simple. You you subscribe to a bunch of SaaS services because you you run today. Businesses are run on SaaS services, especially small businesses uh, where they run almost very very little in house in in house data centers and maybe nothing probably in fact. Everything is up in the cloud. And so you work with Salesforce and you work with some, some product support company and you work with a work with, with Datadog or something for your for your operations. And so you have all these different SaaS companies you're working with that are running your business. And all of those are generating data. And then typically you have some business system that is a core part of what you've created, and that can generate a lot of data. And now it's pretty straightforward to take products like Fivetran, which allows you to take that data off of those SaaS systems and collect it into a centralized data warehouse, products like Snowflake, or many other products in the industry, because there's now really five vendors that provide the modern data stack, Snowflake and Databricks, plus the three cloud vendors, uh, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google, all have their own offerings in this space. And so you choose a platform, you choose a data pipeline vendor, and you start working with data and and you choose a bi tool you know tableau power bi something like that and you can start working with data and you can begin to do machine learning and it's available everything's available for you everything can be in one place it's much easier in 2014 it was so much harder it was so much harder before that existed now it's now it's it's all coming together for people please subscribe to our newsletter hit the subscribe button on our website subscribe to our YouTube channel, check out cxotalk.com. We have incredible shows coming up. Bob, this concept of democratizing data is so important. What does that have to do with creating the AI uh, growth that we have today? This idea of making technology available to everyone has been core to what I've certainly been been focused on in my entire career. You know, when I look back at what we did, my my teams did at Microsoft in some of the early days, the 1990s and into the 2000s, you know, what what I'm very proud of, and maybe one of the things I'm the most proud of, is that uh, when you when you looked at at technology before that time frame. It was really only available to the largest companies. You know, people would buy mainframes or they'd buy these big expensive mini computers. 
And you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars of outlay in order to buy the technology required to run a business. Well, Microsoft changed all of that in the 1990s with products like Windows Server and SQL Server, both of which are products I spent a lot of time on. And that allowed companies of essentially any size to run a business. You know, go back to 1990, uh, your dentist was totally paper and pencil. The small business, the dry cleaner down the corner at the corner was probably also paper and pencil. That's how business ran in that time frame. And it, it was the 1990s in technology like small business server, Windows server, SQL server. All of those were technologies packaged together that allowed companies to build applications that ran and, and used and were, were available to small businesses. And now, of course, you look everywhere and everything's computerized. Now it's services. But back then, it was on-premises systems running in a little server in the closet that was in those rooms, and it was and people could do that for tens of thousands of dollars, much much less costly than the alternatives that were available. So fast forward to today, we're in a services world where everything is a service, and everything can be purchased as as a, through some sort of subscription. You just apply to it, and you pay for what you use, and so now it's. It's very cost effective, or at least reasonably cost effective for organizations of any size to work with information and to treat information and data as one of their core assets, which I think everybody should do. Everybody, the data you have and that you collect is a critical element of everybody's business. And now it is reasonably straightforward to make use of that with these tools like the modern data stack and the products that are that are part of that. And now we have this whole set of artificial intelligence models that can be built on top of this data foundation that is that can be set up in organizations. And what that does, and what's changed in 2023, which really didn't exist 24 months ago, I mean, it, this is pretty new, uh, is that we now have with these artificial intelligence, this idea this, that, that there is literally intelligence inside uh, a computer that you can take and and teach to do things um, on your behalf. And, you know, the way I often describe this is is that people have skills that they've learned in a given domain, and they understand the attributes of that domain, how things work, how this talks to that. That's knowledge that everyone has, and it's up in their head. Uh, What's now possible for the first time is to kind of bottle that knowledge, to take that knowledge that you have and stick it inside one of these AI models and allow that model to do much of that work for you. And that provides a whole new set of opportunities and makes things possible that just were not possible, like you say, 24 months ago. It's pretty exciting. So on the one hand, you've got this ease of access because of all of the SaaS tools and the lower costs, lower barriers to entry that you were describing earlier. However, AI is so different because of the open-ended nature of the result. And so where does the cultural element come into play that, okay, we have all of these tools, but our organization is hierarchical and we're structured and we have silos and we want predictable results and AI is not doing that. So there's this cultural element and how does that fit in? One of the most important things I've, I've said is that when you were building these services that you, know, you purchase or you create for your internal users, 
those services in one way or another imbue the values of your organization. And you can see that in decisions that get made in the way those products are offered and 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 the kinds of things that they present to end users. The culture comes through, the values come through. This has been true for a long time. I could see it in products that I knew well. I could understand how decisions that were made by people and the values of those people were reflected in the products that they built. You can actually look at that and understand that if you if you can trace it back to the people that built it. Well, now it's it's multiply that by a hundred because the values of the organization are going to get programmed into these models that get created. And so it's important to really understand your values. That's something that I think is incredibly important for every company to do. I encourage every small company I work with to build their values and really live by their values. That was something that was very important to me when I built Snowflake was that it was going to be a values-based company. And um, fortunately, the team was very, they wanted it. And, and you know, we created a company that really people like to work with. Right? Not, it wasn't just a good product, but it was a good company as well because it was a values-based company. Well, those values are now going to get imbued in all of the AI that gets created by every company. And I think this is just actually an opportunity for people to really understand what they're all about and then take the core of that and implement it in these models. And now it starts to become reproducible because, you know, what we're going to start to see is a lot of questions are going to get answered by these models. So one of the areas of, of initial progress that the technology is really ready for right now is uh, is to solve problems like helping people to answer product support questions without having to go to a product support specialist. Models are really good at answering questions like that. And if we can augment the models with knowledge, uh, we can we can uh, we can make sure the models answer the questions correctly for the customer. But again, you know the values will begin to show through in this, so it's really important that we think about that and 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 build it that way. When you go back just ten years ago, we're in 2013, and we're looking at it. You were you were ruminating on the concept of starting Snowflake and getting going in that engine. You looked at the industry and you said, "This is where we're going. That we're going to be more." Uh, data centered, and this is, these are the things that are missing. In your book, you talk about you know the next twenty years, and there's a point where most most futurists they show the exponential chart and they say this is the singularity. However, in your book, you added a few steps in there, in between there. You said yes, this is where we're at with ChatGPT and large language models. But before we get to singularity, there's all these fundamental steps that need to be filled in. Where is the future thinker and Bob at today? And what do you think it, a, a technologist needs to solve for the next like 10? Well, in the short run, I think what everybody's really focusing on in the next 12 months or so is to take this technology that exists in foundation models, primarily large language models, and uh, and apply it in applications. We're mostly waiting for the apps right now. Um, you know, we've had this incredible hype cycle in the first six months of this year. I've never seen hype bigger than the AI hype, which is good. I think it, it deserved it. I actually think it deserved it. And I'm pleased it happened, but it did. And now I think we're kind of at the peak of the hype. And in, you know, in Gartner terms, we're sort of starting to enter the trough of disillusionment right now as people wait for the applications. But in this case, I think, again, following Gartner, I think that's going to be a short trough 
And pretty soon next year, we'll be on to the slope of enlightenment where people begin to understand how the technology will really be applied in their in their business. And I think that will start to happen in the next year as we see more products become finalized and people can begin working with them. You know, the Adobe products, the Microsoft products, plus the, the incorporation of AI in, in virtually every other product that people are using. And I think the technology that sits behind the AI is improving dramatically so that over the next 12 months or so, people will be able to leverage this AI as a part of their modern data stack solution using Databricks or Snowflake or Fabric or BigQuery, whatever they want to use, and to work inside that environment to actually build AI applications for themselves. And they'll understand better how to do it. So we're at that stage right now where AI is being established into the industry. You know, between now and then, I see advancements in databases. A lot of my focus has been on how databases will change in the next 10 years. And I think relational technology is ready for a breakthrough um, in the sense that it's ready to begin to leave SQL behind. SQL and relational have been copacetic and tied together since IBM invented both in the 1970s. And it's great, and SQL is fantastic, and it's very appropriate for working with structured data. But now there's all these different kinds of data. We have semi-structured data. We have complex data in the form of, vi of, of videos and documents and things. And relational technology can apply to that, but, uh, but we're being held back in some senses by SQL. So while I see SQL continue to be incredibly important, very, very critical, the, 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 still the standard for working with data and slicing and dicing data, I think we'll begin to see products that work with with provide much more sophisticated database technologies that break free of the box of SQL. To the point where we'll have just unstructured databases that still can give us the same outputs as a SQL? There's no such thing as an unstructured database. There's no, no such thing truly as an unstructured file. What would an unstructured file do? People call this unstructured. It's not unstructured. It's complex structure. I mean, a video is complex structure. A document is a very complex structure, okay? These are not unstructured documents. These are not unstructured things. We've just talked about them that way because they've been opaque, not to us. I mean, you can take a picture of, of an unstructured picture of a horse eating hay in a barn, and a four-year-old can identify that. But until a few years ago, a computer just thought it was a bunch of bits. Now, with machine learning, a computer will identify that as a horse eating hay. It's not unstructured. It's now data. All of these formats are, 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 are rich opportunities with data. And, and, and relational is a very broad set of mathematics that can be applied to data of any shape. And so where we've worked with data in the form of tables, we can now start to work with it relationally in the form of semi-structured documents as well as any shape. And that's where this idea of a knowledge graph comes in, that you can take and, and create a shape of objects that can describe almost anything. And most importantly, we will begin to see knowledge graphs model business process. You know, the world is moving to modeling in general, whether they're explicit models done through relational technology or whether they're, 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 they're statistical models based on these, these new uh, uh, neural network-based machine learning, artificial intelligence things. They're still models. And more and more, we'll move to modeling our world expl both explicitly and statistically. 
and uh, and and that will really help people to understand what their business is all about and make better business decisions and drive things forward. Figure out what to do. Let's shift gears slightly. This this discussion of models is a very important one, but another important aspect of all of this is the cloud and. You have been involved with the cloud, helping shape what we think of as the the modern modern cloud computing. And so, where does cloud fit into again the possibility of AI and what we're currently experiencing? The future is cloud. I'll just say that I think the future is more and more companies will adapt the cloud in one sense or another for to run their business. And even companies that think of themselves as running things on premises will use a variety of cloud services in a, in a, in a ways. And, and the cloud continues to expand. You know, one of the most interesting places where the cloud is moving to is the edge, you know, devices that get closer to you inside cities and things. And I think that's going to become progressively more important uh, as we move into a world of robotics. Um, one of the key things that I think is going to happen over the next 10 to 15 years is we will enter what I think of as the era of robotics, where robots of various shapes, they'll be flying around as drones, they'll be you know, walking around in our houses eventually, they'll be you know, running down the sidewalk, you know, doing all sorts of things. These robots will be working and interacting with us in our lives, and I think the cloud will control all of that. And it will start in these centralized, massive data centers, but it will extend out to edge data centers that are in every city around the world that help to control these things in effectively real time. You have two drones flying around. They better know where each other is and and not because you don't want these things to crash into each other. And so traffic control is going to be a whole new set of things. And you really need a cloud-like system to do that. It's the only way you can possibly solve these problems. So, you know, while on-premises remains important, customers have security concerns, some companies feel that's very crucial to them, more and more these things are going to be cloud-based services. And in general, data collection in the cloud and analysis in the cloud is so much more appropriate because it's very bursty in its nature. And so instead of having to have dedicated computer resources to do things, you just have computer resources when you need them. We have some members in the audience that have a ton of questions. I'm going to take one of the questions right now, and it's from a frequent CXO Talk listener and viewer of the show, Arsalan Khan, and he's got a really good question. It, what he's asking is, if we all become data collectors and we start to just unearth and just say, this data is valuable, this is that, this is this, who's going to be the enforcer and really make sure we need to collect this data? How do we store this data? What are the privacy uh, laws pertaining to the data? And like, what do you feel is the right outlook for that? The issues of... of of regulation is always a really interesting conversation. And, you know, there are clearly steps of things that are very important. Uh, different parts of the world have different views on privacy. You know, Europe's view on privacy is different than the view in the United States and certainly different than in some Asian countries. And those, you know, those sorts of compliance requirements have to be taken into account in everything. I, I think that the tools are going to continue to improve to make this easier and easier. Uh, the, the GDPR was actually, in my opinion, a big step forward. The alternatives were much worse before then. It was, the alternative was confusion before then. GDPR at least makes things clear as to what you need, or generally reasonably clear as to what you need to do. Remember, there's no such thing as unstructured data. So there's no such thing as confusion <laughs> in your world. 
Well, that can be confusing. There's a lot of things that are confusing in this world. That's different than that. There's a lot of things in this world. Uh, and, and frankly, a lot of regulations are pretty confusing. I mean, you look at some of these regulations and they're almost almost impossible to understand. But um, but 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 compliance will always be an important part of this. And and in particular, access control, all of these things are very important. And frankly, there's some of the problems that still need to be addressed in the modern data stack. It's not hard to put access control on your data in the modern data stack. What's a little hard is to manage that and to understand exactly what access can, access people have. That's still pretty hard. Those problems will get solved over the next few years, though. Um, but there are, you actually need knowledge graphs to solve. You know, the thing that's interesting is that all these problems are appearing where where it's becoming clear you need a semantic model for something. You need to describe what you're trying to accomplish. And semantic models for business is really important. Where is the, the, the business rules? Where does the business rules exist inside your organization? Interesting question for any C, CXO to ask. Where are those rules that exist? Well, let me tell you where they mostly exist. They exist inside applications, often very opaque. You don't know what the hell they're doing, but they're in there. Um, so these are applications you're running. They exist in Slack messages. They exist in whiteboards. They exist in people's heads. They are very. They are almost never declared explicitly, and 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 never are they declared explicitly in a way where they can be operationalized. That's all going to change with knowledge graphs. That's what knowledge graphs are all about, is to take what's today implicit about the business and make it explicit and to define the semantics associated with the business. Now, here's the interesting learning, and I've heard this now from at least eight different sources that are people trying to use these large language models to do things. One of the areas of advancement that people are trying to solve is to use English as a BI language, as a business intelligence language. So instead of having to write a SQL query directly, you could just ask a model you know, to find your data for you. Well, what people are finding as they try and build these systems is that to solve that problem, they need to have some kind of semantic model sitting behind the large language model to explain how the data works. You know, these there's these very simple demos. You have orders and you've got customers. And you do a very simple demo and you run a query. And boy, isn't it cool? You can get an answer. You just ask a question in English. Try that with your real data and your the complexity of the data environment that you have. It won't work the way you would expect. To make it work, we have to help the language models understand our business. Because how can they possibly, if we don't understand our business, how can they understand our business? And, and the only way you can do is being explicit. So the one thing I want to ask you here, and this is, and then I'm going to pass it back to Mike, is you have very clear, explicit expectations of the technology and where we're going. However, one of the things that I see when I look at just the, the current landscape is the way we structure our teams, if we get these technologies to work the way they should, and, and this is past the hallucinations. This is past the semantic models actually working. It's like, once that works, why do I need the current team structures that I have? And how do you think of rescaling and upskilling kind of your organization? Well, I think that team structures will change. I mean, they always change as technology advances. Technology advances change the way teams work. You know, if you look at, at if you just look at data teams in general, if you look at a modern data team today, it looks a lot different than a modern data team did 10 years ago. I mean, a Tata team 10 years ago probably was working, if they were really sophisticated, they were working with Tableau and they had a, you know, they had one data yeah. warehouse and there was another, but the other team over here was working with Excel and this team over here was doing this other different thing. And 
Today, they have these things all centralized. That required different ways of structuring and thinking about teams. One of the areas of conversation, there's been a a organizational structure described called data mesh. People have heard of that. Data mesh is, is essentially a way of organizing teams and thinking of data as a product within that team and then providing that to other groups within the organization. Totally appropriate. It's exactly the right way to think about things for large organizations that have multiple data teams. So my point is, is that is that as technology changes, the organizational structure that you put in place to support that has to evolve. And it will be different in different companies. You know, having talked to many companies, some are very centralized with very centralized IT and everything goes through that. Some are super decentralized and they have to think differently. And, and you know, changing it, I would never encourage anyone to make a giant change in their culture unless they feel there's a strong business reason to do it. But you need to have adjustments in the way you work with your, your teams within your existing culture, whether it's centralized, decentralized, whatever its element is, to allow you to run your business as the technology changes. Large language models will have an impact on that, for sure. They will have a, an impact on that. Exactly how? I don't know. Honestly, I'm not sure. I mean, it'll change. It'll, it'll be very dependent on how the technology devolves. You know, I, I'm sure we have not seen the coolest applications of this. You know, there will be new things coming that people will, will be wowed by that will change the way business works that we've not even seen yet. And so we have to see how the technology gets applied, but it will change it. But Bob, what you're describing, of course, makes perfect sense, but in a way, it's a kind of science fiction for many organizations today. And so going back to a question that Q asked earlier, how can organizations adopt this? And then maybe that's a great lead in into Isaac Asimov and literally science fiction. Everybody should adopt the modern data stack, some incarnation of the modern data stack. You should be looking at your data sources, um, whether they're internal applications or whether they're they're third-party SaaS applications, or they're the apps you purchased and you run, whatever you're doing, on-premises cloud, uh, take that data, you know, put in place a one of the modern data stack providers like Snowflake, uh, adopt that as a centralized repository for your data. Um, you buy tools that 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 will allow you to move the data out of your uh, out of your different applications, your operational apps, into the centralized repository, and begin to work with it, and get the data together, and begin to allow people to analyze it. Begin to become data driven. I mean, this is the first major element for a company is to adopt a data driven mentality where they begin to use their data sources as the way to answer questions. And this is the biggest cultural transformation that I think many companies have to go through, is to begin to trust the data. And what I have found is that valid data that people believe is the fastest way to close a discussion and to make a decision. And, you know, in an, in an organization, decision-making, you're trying to make the best decision you can in a timely manner is, is critical for every organization. And by far, the best way to do that is to do it data-driven. And what I have found is that I think my intuition is pretty good. 
and it is often very wrong. What I intuitively believe is often disproven by the data. And I have learned to follow the data and not follow my intuition. And, and I think if you look at really successful companies, if you look at a company like Google or Amazon, these are data-driven companies. So build off the data, literally, right? And I look at your resume, your track record. You've been a part of some of the most influential and impactful technologies to, to touch base in the technological landscape last three, four decades. The question that I have is in the last decade, you, you did the unthinkable. You could have just set, railed off into the sunset and like, you know, chilled, been a VC and, and, and just literally been the iconic uh, force that you are. But instead, you hopped into the saddle and became an entrepreneur. And there's a lot of learnings there that I'm sure you had. You weren't just any entrepreneur. You actually took your company public and you did it in less than 10 years, which is already pretty astronomical in itself. The question I have for you is like, how do you think about just the team and the structures within the org? Because obviously the thoughts that you have here, and if it's the data you're following, I want to know more about that, that, that just how you led meetings, how you organize teams, like things of that nature. What are the, the quick takeaways in that, in that department? I actually have a very, very short toolbox of management techniques. There's not an enormous, I don't have like a hundred different things that I pull out of my toolbox. There's only a few. My my absolute favorite technique is the regular meeting that you have with, with an organization to drive an, an outcome. And the cadence of that, if you are the leader of the organization, the cadence of that is often a week that you do a weekly meeting with your team to drive an outcome. Let me give you an example of, of, of one of the first times I think we did this incredibly successfully, and that was at Microsoft um, when I was, I mean, it's not the first time, but it was a really exemplary time. When, when I was running the Windows Server team and VMware was exploding in the marketplace, this was back in the early 2000s, and this was the time when virtualization was just taking over in the in the IT industry. And it was a huge threat to us in some senses, you know, VMware was, and we had our own product, Hyper-V, which we were competing with them on. But we put in place, I ran a process because this was a massive change to the Windows Server business. We we're literally moving from physical licensing to virtual licensing. I mean, it's a big change. I mean, it's a huge business. It was a $5 billion business even back then. And uh, so you don't take these things lightly, right? I mean, mistakes can be very, very costly. And so we ran a process over many weeks where I had about a, about a dozen people across the company meeting strategists, financial people, product people, marketing people, sales people, people from every part of the organization thinking about the problem. And we talked about how we would restructure things. And over time, we came to a new licensing model that ultimately turned out to be a real win-win. I mean, I look back on that. And while we were very competitive with VMware back then, you look back and both what happened? Both companies won. And what a great outcome. VMware won and Microsoft won. Actually, all three won because the customer won too. So it was a win-win-win. And that's always what you look for. And especially when you think about partners, where I always think about partnerships as tactical, every partnership is tactical. There's no such thing as a strategic partnership. There are just long-term tactical partnerships. And to me, you're always seeking that win-win with your partner. And if you can't find that, then that partnership's going to dissolve. And, uh, and you know, I look back in the process of doing that is always a process I find where it requires the thoughts of multiple people working together. I'm so much smarter when, you know, when my brain is combined 
with the thoughts and ideas of so many other people. And, and, and those all come together to create a stew of the best possible ideas. Mike Prest, who's CIO of a private equity investment group, asks on LinkedIn, he says, customer-centric, trans customer-centric, transparent data collection policies can help industry self-regulate. Your thoughts on the issue of companies having opaque data collection policies and the, the fact that consumers are less likely to trust and use these companies. So the issue of, of data and trust. Well, it's a huge issue, right? I mean, companies will have their own policies associated with it, and different businesses require different things. Uh, you know, companies that are advertising based, for example, is their primary as their primary um, um, revenue model. Their primary customers, their advertisers, not their consumers. So, what I think of is, I believe in transparency on these things as much as possible. When we created Snowflake, we did this in a very transparent way, the way we work with data, because we were. That's what customers were doing. They were trusting us with their data. So I'm a big fan of transparency. I know how important it is. And yet I recognize there are businesses where there probably won't be transparency. Mostly those are businesses where the interest of the business is not aligned with myself as a consumer. Arsalan Khan comes back and he says, an image is essentially data. It creates, if we create an image through text to image, basically the bottom line is, who owns the work product, the AI or the artist, and how do we manage that mess? These are derivative works, and so that you're you're creating new things. I mean, I I I think what's going to happen is creators, authors, publishers, people who create something, uh, artists, whatever, they're going to decide whether what they want AI to do with their work whether they want to be AI to be able to work on it. And if they don't want to, I think there'll be no, don't, don't, don't tread on me. And the AI will avoid those, those people. My guess is going to be that that is a temporary thing and that everybody's going to want the AI to, to, to understand your work product. Um, if, 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 you know, if any, if open AI or Google or anyone wants to read the datapreneurs, please read the datapreneurs with your next large language model and make sure it knows what the, I want it. To, I want it to be in there. And that's a decision that I, you know, as as, a, as an author makes. So I think it'll be a decision made by the creator, basically. You refer to Isaac Asimov as a prophet. Why? Over 60 years ago, he foresaw all of this in amazing ways, really, in truly amazing ways. He wrote his first robot novels and defined what he what's known as the Asimov's three laws of robotics. You know, in 1942. Okay, that was before the digital computer was invented. Just think about that. Asimov was thinking about a world where people would live with intelligent machines. And the big thing he did is he didn't treat this as these, these robots as Frankensteinian creations that shouldn't have been made. He thought about them as machines that were created by humans to serve humans. And what are we doing now? We're doing exactly that. And, and it, remarkably, if you look at his books, a lot of, of what he was writing about was happening when? The 2030s and 2040s. And guess when it's actually going to happen? His timing is almost exactly right on. You know, I believe by 2040, we will have humanoid robots that will live amongst us and perform tasks working for us, helping to take care of elderly people, helping us in our households, helping us in a whole bunch of ways. This is coming. And Asimov foresaw it. And in order for it to work, we need effectively the laws of robotics. And to give you an idea of, about how far ahead he was, you know, he in in the 
later in his career, he augmented the laws of robotics. You know, the original laws were a robot must not harm a human or, or allow a human to come to harm. And, and, it, and it must accept orders, except when those obey the first law, and then it can pres preserve its existence. In later on, he created the zeroth law, which was that a robot may not harm humanity or through inaction allow humanity to come to harm. Now, think about how, how present that is, you know, thinking about that so far ahead of time and look at where we are and what we're doing. And he was thinking about that then. That's a profit for you. What is your least favorite word in the realm of technology? I have learned over time that that technology is going to make almost everything possible over time, and it's just a question of of of, of getting the timing right and 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 realizing what's possible. You know, impossible. I would say that I would say the word I like the least is impossible because because things that we thought were impossible now are possible, and I think that that that's going to continue to be true. So apparently, you would not be a great default to no CIO. You don't believe in that. I believe in yes. I believe in making things happen. I believe in solving problems. I, I, I'm a big fan of that. This is from Elizabeth Shaw. How can we avoid an AI-mediated dystopian future? By values, by making sure that we think about the values we create. The machines will reflect our values. And, and because people will create these machines, we will have machines that, that reflect every value, everyone that people have. And that means the good, the bad, and the really awful. So we're going to see some really awful things too. But we have to manage that just like we manage everything else. You know, I've lived I lived my entire life under the nuclear umbrella. And you know, I grew up in the in the era where I ducked and covered in the 1960s when it was very real. And you know, here we are. We you know, we've been able to survive as humanity. We can survive AI too. It, Skynet doesn't there's no Skynet only happens if we want it, if we make it happen. Again, from Arsalan Khan, he's really on a roll. He says, what is in an organization, which is more important, the data or the people? Always the people. The people are everything, always. The data is just is what comes from people. People create everything. So you're going to start another company? I help people start companies. I help people build companies. That's what I'm doing now. But would you do it again? I feel like you still got something in you from, from this conversation. For a bunch of personal reasons, it's probably not the right thing for me to do. You know, one of my challenges is that I don't know how to do this anything less than 100 hours a week. You know, I wish I could be good at that. I'm not. I'm not. So I, I, I have to recognize my limitations on that. And so now by working through others, I can keep my time reasonable and help a lot of other people be successful, which is great. That's what I love to do. Help people be successful. Okay. And with that, I'm afraid this is this very fast conversation is out of time. A huge thank you to Bob Muglia. He is an industry legend and the author of The Datapreneurs. And to my excellent co-host, Q Harrison Terry. Q, it's a pretty fast and furious conversation. It was. Bob put it in fifth gear pretty fast and we stayed there the whole time. So everybody, Thank you for watching. Now, before you go, please subscribe to our newsletter. Hit the subscribe button on our website. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Check out CXOTalk.com. We have incredible shows coming up and special surprises. Check it out. We'll see you soon. Have a good one, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.